This is the MD's Fantasy Football Show with Dan Mader. Giving you the X's and O's of all things fantasy. On the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back, MD Nation, to the show. You are listening to the MD's Fantasy Football Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, WWSRN, also brought to you by Belly Up Sports. As always, I'm your host, Dan Maynard, joined here with my partner over the last, what, almost two months now, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Christopher Dowhauer. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing all right. How's MD Nation today? I'm excited to talk about the coaching changes. I think this is one of the big things that we talk about that not shows we'll get into as much when it comes to fantasy football, but I think it's one of the key things. Well, I feel like it gets skipped over a lot of the time where they'll mention it. It'll be in the background when these different players come in, but they don't seem to weigh it in heavily enough when you're actually examining the potential fantasy value of these guys and how these new schemes are going to work out, which is always why I love doing this episode in particular. Now, normally... I would actually wind up waiting until after the draft to do this episode, but I'm kind of glad we're doing it beforehand because it might give you a better idea when you're looking at some of these rookies ahead of time when these guys fall into certain situations, what you can already expect, not just with playing time, but with their style fit. It's very, very important. Style fit can sometimes mean more than a talented football player depending upon the situation they land in. We were talking about a fantasy football perspective. I don't care if a guy had you know 12-plus yards Air, air yards per target in his career. If he's going to somewhere, they don't throw the ball down the field, but then it doesn't really matter as much anymore. You can't really count on that. It's just a, for instance, as why these coaching changes impacts are so important. And we're going to go through all of them today. And we're going to mention some one, just to make sure you guys are up to date that we're not really going to have a big fantasy impact on, but I want to make sure MD nation is at least aware of these coaching changes as we go through here. Ben, not with us again this week. Hopefully, he'll be back with us next week. But he did take the time to record the mailbag segment, which will be at the end of the show, as it always is. All you have to do is check out at BellyUpMDFFShow on any social media and hit us up. We're always here for you guys. Even if we don't put your mailbag question on the show, it doesn't mean we're not answering your question. We are there for you guys 24-7 whenever you want to hit us up. And... We've had some really great polls that we're going to go over the results of in today's show and kind of get an idea of what MD Nation, what the public is thinking about some of these guys right now, especially a couple interesting ones that came out this week. So again, just hit us up at BellyUpMDFF Show on social media to be able to participate in those polls and kind of get an idea for yourself of where everyone is thinking. It's a good idea to know what's in the mind of your opponent. That's why we do these polls. It's, it's for interaction for the community, but it's also getting an idea what is in the mind of the people you're going to be playing fantasy football against. So we're back here again. It's 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network like we are every single week. We're a couple of weeks away from the draft, and there's a lot of things that we're going to be going getting into. Now, before we get into the coaching changes impact we did have a couple of transactions this week that are very very fantasy relevant that we're going to talk about first and we're going to lead it off with james connor going to the arizona cardinals and instead of waiting to the end of the show we did have a poll on this i think it's important that we point it out now to kind of get an idea where the public is at and the question was in a full ppr league would you rather have who's going to score more points, Chase Edmonds or James Conner? 67% still airing on the side of Chase Edmonds, 37% for James Conner. Chris, where are you at when it comes to these two and the outlook of the Arizona Cardinal backfield? 
I think the PPR thing, I think that our fans hit it right on the head. I think PPR-wise, Chase Edmonds is definitely going to be the guy. We saw that in his primary pass catcher last year in Arizona. Um, when it comes down to how I think it kind of unfolds, I think we're going to kind of see a 60-40 split, Edmonds to Connor. We kind of saw Kenyon Drake used about, about that way used last year towards the end of the season. Uh, I think Connor will get a chance to be in, used in the red zone. Then he'll get a chance to be used in short yard situations. Uh, maybe, you know, at the end of the game to try to run off the clock and things along those lines. But I think this is still Chase Edmonds is the, the guy to have in that backfield. Um, if anything, it kind of sabotages it a little bit where you, you had a clear cut number one running back and you were kind of excited about Chase Edmonds' potential. But now you have to kind of, you know, worry about getting, does he get vultured in touchdowns? Does he get vultured here or there for some yards? But I think overall, both of them kind of uh, pair well with each other. And I'm, you know, I don't think Arizona has a whole lot invested in James Conner. They give him a $1.75 million contract. So I don't think it guarantees. Yeah, on a one-year deal. So I don't think it guarantees anything necessarily either. No, I mean, nothing long-term wise. But what I will say is that this goes back to you can't trust a word that comes out of <laughs> Cliff Kingsbury's mouth, especially when it's pertaining to Chase Edmonds. We love Chase Edmonds. He'll be our guy. We'll give him a shot. Every time they have said that, they've gone out and gotten a running back. They said it about him when he was paired up with David Johnson, who looked like he was on his way out. They went out and traded for Kenyon Drake. They said it this past offseason, and now they signed James Conner to a one-year deal. At the very least, I'm with you on the carry split. I think it's going to be somewhere between a 60-40, 55-45 split in favor of James Conner when it comes to the carries. I do believe also he will get the goal line work. So if you're playing those standard leagues, which not as many people are anymore, but if you're playing those standard leagues, James Conner might actually be the more valuable back. But if you're in half point, full point PPR, which most people are playing at this point, I'm going to take the consistency of a Chase Edmonds because he's not going to be lenient on the touchdowns to be able to keep up his fantasy value because I do believe like it's going to be a 55-45 to 60-40 split in favor of James Conner for the carries. It's going to be exactly that percentage, if not more. It might be closer to 65-35 split in favor of Chase Edmonds when it comes to the passing down work. He's just more explosive in that area. And I, even though I don't trust Coach Cliff Kingsbury when it comes to let's give Edmonds all the work, I do think he had enough effect last season and now you're bringing in James Conner, where he will be primarily the passing down back, not just on third down in longs, but in two minute drills when they're trying to, you know, just speed up and go no huddle in the third quarter to get that offense moving as they oftentimes do, because usually that was a team that didn't get going until the second half, quite frankly. You're going to see him in a lot of roles like that as well. He'll be the change of pace guy, he'll be the main pass catcher. So, half point and full point PPR, I do believe I will have Chase Edmonds ranked ahead of James Conner. But Connor's going to get those touchdowns, and it's going to take away from Edmonds' ceiling as a result, but I think it'll be more consistent. Ultimately, Chase Edmonds is a guy that, you know, for now, you are having to look at possibly in redraft leagues anyway in the third round. Now you don't have to. That ADP is going to drop. I think neither one of these guys, because of the way how evenly they might eat into each other, what their roles are going to be, I don't think I'm looking at either one of these guys before the fourth round. Ideally, I'm not drafting either one of these guys until the sixth round when you're talking about 12-man redraft leagues. When it comes to Dynasty, though, I am still high on Chase Edmonds. I'm not going to look to, to walk away from him because, again, this is a one-year contract. I'd like to see what happens. We know James Conner has a tendency to get injured. And Chase Edmonds will have some games this season, I believe. We'll get to be the guy. And we see what he can do in those situations as well. So from Dynasty, I'm not going to look to move on. It doesn't scare me away. But 
it does tell me that he's never going to be in a situation where he's going to be getting 16 plus carries along with five to six targets every single game. I don't know if there's anything you want to rebuttal with that. I mean, I think I differ a little bit in the standard league. I still have Edmonds probably higher on both in both accounts and all leagues. Um, just simple fact that I don't think Edmonds is necessarily an every day, all, all day, all day, every day back. Um, I think that one of the situations for him is that he probably is most effective getting 12 to 15 carries or 12 to 15 touches, I should say. Um, I think it's actually going to be good for him to have somebody to split the carries with. I don't think he can last the whole season being the featured guy. So I think that if you're looking at Chase Edmonds, I looked at him as an RB2 probably before, probably a good flex play RB3 right now. Um, and I think that I still would have him over Connor. I, I don't know if I agree with that just because I know Connor's going to get the goal line work in the standard league, but it's going to be close between these two. It's going to be a poor man version of a Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. They're not going to put up that kind of production as a tandem, but it's going to be somewhere along those lines where you're going to see both of these guys on the field a lot throughout the game. And they're both going to have value. It's just going to be depending on what format you're in and what kind of value you're looking for. If you're looking for the higher floor or a bigger ceiling, because maybe Connor falls into the end zone twice and you're looking for that. Let's move into the other signing that we had this past week. And this was more of a funny signing. If you ever wanted to know why we take everything Bruce Arian says with a grain of salt, and I mean a grain of salt, this move showed it all. Because what was it, two weeks ago? Keyshawn Vaughn's going to have a big breakout year. <clears throat> oh, Gio's available? Oh, br uh, bring, bring him in for me real quick, will you? Yeah, Gio Bernard going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This just became a backfield that I don't know I want to touch unless someone gets cut or traded You know, as we get closer or into training camp. I'm, who, because at this point now, we know Ronald Jones was never a guy who was going to catch the ball. That's why they're using Leonard Fournette more in that capacity. It's clear Tom Brady wasn't overly thrilled with Leonard Fournette all the time catching the ball out of that backfield. And Keyshawn Vaughn, whether he's just not picking up the protection scheme, whether they don't want to trust a younger guy, whatever the case may be, clearly they're not going to allow him to be the third down or the third back in that rotation. Even last year, they signed LaShawn McCoy for no reason. So this goes back to Gio Bernard is going to have a role. And I don't mean he's going to have a role in the sense that he's going to be finding his way onto your fantasy platforms. I don't think he turns into James White, let's say, with Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones available, where he's going to be on the field that that much to that capacity where he's a value in PPR leagues. But he's going to be there to take away the value of a Leonard Fournette. He's going to be there to take away the value of a Ronald Jones. And now I find myself in a situation where I was looking for potential value out of that backfield, maybe out of Leonard Fournette, who if he was... You know, he's been coming out and saying he's been working very hard on his passing work, on his receiving work. And I thought maybe he would have the opportunity, given the way he dominated at the end of the season, especially in the postseason when Ronald Jones was healthy and yet still did not see the field because of the way Leonard Fournette was playing. I thought there was a chance he might have to take over that backfield. Now, I think there's going to be such a platoon in effect, such a committee in effect that I don't know if I want to touch anything out of this backfield unless it's falling to me in the eighth, ninth round with a Leonard Fournette or a Ronald Jones. It's just at absolute value. Other than that, I'm not even thinking about this backfield. How about you? I mean, you make an excellent point about Bruce Arians that never trusted him when he says when it comes to running backs, especially. My goodness, um, I love the guy, but my goodness, he's annoying to have to listen to in fantasy football. And we kind of kind of tasted this early in the offseason where they were they were courting James White. And if he wasn't have got that little bit of higher offer that he got back to go back to New England, he was actually considering strongly to go to Tampa Bay. They were looking to upgrade at the running back position, the pass catching especially. 
As you pointed out, Tom Brady was extremely unhappy with the running backs catching the ball. Um, they led the league in drops last year in the running backs. Uh, I think they had – Fournette had about seven drops. Jones had about, think, about six drops. And then they had – Keyshawn Vaughn had three drops on all ten opportunities. So I think that's kind of why he got the – you know, pushed back to the back burner in this situation. Uh, Gio Bernard, I think, is kind of done in some senses. He doesn't really have the quickness he had. He's not quite as explosive. But one thing he does do, he does catch the ball. And the other thing he was to do is he was to finish top five in pass protection last year as a running back. Um, so I think that's something that you hear Tom, you know, Tom Brady is 43 years old. You need somebody kind of there to back, back for him. Um, Ronald Jones is a great pass protector. That's kind of why he took a long time to get on the field this, you know, during his career. Um, Fournette has kind of often on moments with pass protection. And we really see Keyshawn Vaughn after I say what he can or can't block. Um, so I think what they're basically doing, providing themselves insurance. Um, but to your point, well, I want to touch this backfield or not. This is like New England backfield to me all over again. Tom Brady effect in some senses. Um, you're going to have a guy, hopefully, is the clear-cut red zone guy, but we kind of saw this in New England where it could be Burkhead, it could be Sony Michelle, it could be all kinds of different guys. I think we're going to see the same thing in Tampa Bay. Um, and even last year, as you pointed out, during their playoff run, Fournette stepped up, but he wasn't giving much of a shot throughout the season either. So it's kind of kind of be whoever has the hot hand. With Bruce Arians, it's going to be from week to week, just like kind of Patriots were, and I – I'm with you. Unless some great value falls into my hands, um, I'm not really trying to direct them. What I will keep an eye on is if somebody goes down for waiver wire pickups, then I would be, I'd be definitely interested. But I definitely don't suggest drafting G. and Robert Bernard. Um, he's not going to put up James White numbers. He's not as quick as James White. He's not as good as route runner as James White is. While he'll help you a security blanket for Tampa, um, I don't think he brings quite the same things that he was, you know, James White ever did in New England. Even the waiver wire point that you just made, I don't know how much that's going to be in the play because whoever drafts a Ronald Jones, whoever drafts a Leonard Fournette, I don't know if you're, they're ever going to be bad enough where you're going to drop them. Whether you play them or not is going to be a different scenario, but whether they're bad enough to ever drop them. So I don't even know if, if from a waiver wire standpoint if there's going to be value to be had there necessarily. Uh, and you know, Obviously, we have to see how this all shakes out, but when you're looking at it right now, it's just a backfield that I'm going to just throw my hands up, lump them in with the Patriots, like you said, and completely just be like, I just want to avoid this altogether. There's no reason to wish this headache upon myself, especially when you're actually going to have quite a few options at the running back position throughout the league, throughout your drafts. There's going to be more depth, more more uh, things to look at when we go through the process, especially as we get into our projections and our rankings as we get closer and closer uh, into training camp, closer and closer to August. I hope my, my first preliminary projections I'm hoping to have out uh, sometime in June, beginning of July. And we'll be talking about that and going through all of that. There's going to be other options for you. There's no reason to give yourself a headache. And headaches don't win fantasy football championships because most of the time you want to pick in the wrong guy because you never know what guy is going to be from a week-to-week basis. Before we jump now into what this show is about, which is Coaching Changes Fantasy Impact, I want to let you guys know that our big-time sponsor of the day is Manscaped. And with the first pick of the 2021 Men's Grooming Draft, the Ball Saxonville Sagwires selected Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. And it looks like Mel Kuyper gave this an A-plus grade because this pick is a major upgrade for that Bush defense. For all of my NFL draft fans out there, we have an exclusive 20% off promo code, BellyUpFantasy, at Manscaped.com. 
The reason why Manscaped is the guaranteed number one pick is because of the performance package. This package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Inside the performance package, you're going to find products and liquid formulations that have been developed to turn your bathroom into a salon for your balls. So support the show and get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code BELLYUPFANTASY at manscaped.com. Let's kick this bad boy off with one of my more interesting, I think at least anyway, coaching changes. Actually, before we get into that, though, there is an observation that I had when I, when we were going when I was going through this list about the coaching changes, fantasy impact, and just kind of looking around the league. And outside of the organizations that got a completely new head coach and a completely new you know coach coaching tree from top to bottom in place, there's a lot of coordinator moves this year that don't move the needle at all. Not at all. So we're going to be talking about some of these coaching changes. We're going to let you know. But there's not as many coaching changes that have big-time fantasy impacts this season than in past years, I feel like, anyway, as I was going through this list. But we're going to go through it. This coaching change, however, we're about to talk about is a big-time impact and very intriguing when you look at the team that he went to with what he has in place, and you're left to wonder, what exactly is his game plan going to be? And I'm going to let Chris go here, go first here when we're talking about Arthur Smith as the head coach going to the Atlanta Falcons. He brings with him Dean Pease, who's going to be the defensive coordinator. Uh, he was there with the Patriots and the Ravens and the Titans. And we also have uh, Dave Ragon, or Ragoon, sorry, uh, the Bears quarterback coach for the past four seasons. And last season, he was their passing game coordinator for whatever that's worth. But Chris, the big thing here is Arthur Smith. What is the effect, Arthur Smith, in your mind? What does he bring to the Atlanta Falcons? I mean, I think this is one of the more intriguing hires, as you're talking about. The Atlanta Falcons are known for throwing the ball. You have Julio Jones, you have Calvin Ridley, you have Matt Ryan. Um, but this year, I think they're going to be trying to be more physical, and I think they're going to be trying to establish the run. That's what Arthur Smith is known for. I mean, everyone knows Derek Henry running downhill and trying to, you know, Beat up, beat up other teams with physicality and then having the big plays with the play action. Um, I think that you're going to see kind of a mixture of both. I think people are going to be surprised, actually, that I don't believe Atlanta's going to run the ball nearly as much as Tennessee did just because of the personnel setup. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think Matt Ryan's way better than Ryan Tannehill. Um, he's not quite the RPO option that, you know, that Ryan Tannehill provided, but he can make all the throws. He can still, you know, be a, a big-time quarterback with all the weapons he has. I think the big difference you're going to see is that it'll be more of a uh, um, commitment to running the ball. Um, a lot of times Atlanta talked about it, would go into the season talking about it, and then the season would start and they'd kind of be, you know, fall behind. And they kind of all of a sudden throw the ball over the place again. Um, I well, think this team is going to cutter for you. Exactly. Well, it's not, it wasn't just him. It's been a couple of different guys that have been there you know, over the last couple of years. Um, even Shanahan wasn't quite as running the ball quite as much as he does with San Francisco and Atlanta because they – Kind of personnel setup. I mean, it's, it's hard to throw I don't the ball. Know that, Jones. That. They ran the ball quite a bit with Devonta Freeman and Tevin Coleman. They I mean, did run the not, ball, not but as much, was... not as much as they do with San Francisco. But well, that's also you. because that's you have Matt, Matt Ryan and Julio <laughs> Jones. But I don't, I don't know if they ever got away from running the running the football. It's been more with the last two years with Dirk Cutter, where they keep saying they're going to run it and they don't. Well, I think the big difference though was it wasn't they threw the ball more than they ran the ball. Period. We're not, right. going, we're not quite sure what Tennessee is going to do. I mean, Tennessee last year ran the ball more than they threw the ball. So we have an idea that you know Arthur Smith's going to come in here and, and try to establish the run. So we know that's going to be something he's going to commit to, the state's committed to. The interesting part is they really haven't done anything um, impressive to me in the running back position. Hopefully they're going to draft somebody. I'm not they a cut big Smith. They cut Smith. Well, thank God. Um, but 
and they did sign Davis, um, but I don't think Mike Davis is necessarily the, the guy that's going to be a game changer for them, and he's not necessarily a physical back that's going to you know be where other teams' defenses either. So I think uh, Carter, no, sorry, Arthur Smith's going to be able to kind of do what Carter couldn't do and establish the run and stay with it. Um, I think the big difference you're going to see is you're going to be a lot more rushing touchdowns, and I think that's where you're going to see the positive numbers change a lot more, where they get in the red zone, where you looked for the receivers a lot more, you looked for the tight ends, and Matt Ryan was kind of throwing the ball in the end zone. I won't be surprised if the running backs are utilized a lot more and the tight ends are utilized a lot more um, in this system. Yeah, there's going to be more of a commitment to run the ball. I think we all understand it. It's still conceptually, from a schematic standpoint, this is still going to be a play-action-based offense. So the running game is going to have to be a big part of that. I just don't trust... People seem to... Because Mike Davis had this run in, in for Chris McCaffrey last year, they also everybody seems to be buying back into this idea that Mike Davis is somehow good enough to do it for this season. One, I see no possibility of this guy lasting a full season, number one. Number two, he's Mike Davis. He's okay in spurts. He's okay for a few games. It's still Mike Davis at the end of the day. We saw it last season as the season wore on. His production, his efficiency went down and down and down and down and down. He's nothing special. Can he hold? Can he be the bridge? Possibly. And with Arthur Smith and what we expect out of this offense, this is actually a situation where the draft is going to tell us a lot. If they stay at four, take a Kyle Pitts, if they trade back and eventually take a, a running back in that second round, which I think is what they're going to wind up doing is taking a running back in the second round, in my mind especially if it's Najee Harris on the board or even a Javante Williams. That's going to tell us a lot about what we can expect as far as the consistency or the amount of the run-the-pass ratio coming out of Arthur Smith. But here's what I do know, is that when it comes to the passing attack, I think it's this passing attack is going to be much more efficient. He's going to realize he has a much more accurate quarterback than he had in Ryan Tannehill. You're not going to have the RPO action, so when you go to design a passing play, it's going to be a passing play. It's not going to be an option to it. And I think Julio is going to really thrive in this West Coast type of system. He thrives in the Kyle Shanahan system. Now, it's not exactly the same system, but it's a West Coast concept. And he's going to have that again here. Same thing with Calvin Ridley. If they don't take a Kyle Pitts, I think Hayden Hurst will be very active in the red zone. We saw that with Janu Smith. I don't see why that he would utilize Hayden Hurst much differently. Even when Janu Smith was out, Anthony Ferkser was still a guy that you could actually plug and play as a streamer because you knew he was going to have an opportunity to catch a touchdown. So I think all of that's going to parlay into Matt Ryan having a pretty efficient year. Is he throwing the ball, I don't know, 600 times? No, that's not going to happen. But is he throwing the ball between 540 and 550 times this season? Yeah. And I might even have to adjust that because now, now that I'm thinking about it, that's off a of 16 game number. So 17, we have to like bump that up. So the the new the five the what used to be 540 to 550 pass attempts now becomes 570 to 580 pass attempts. But we know what I mean in, in this standpoint. So I think this passing game is going to be much more efficient. I think it's going to be simplified in some ways. And the biggest thing, it's not going to be vertical for the sake of being vertical, the way it was with their cutter. And the play action will work more effectively because there will be a commitment, no matter who's back there, to having a running game and taking some pressure off of Matt Ryan instead of getting teed off on, which happened a lot last season under Dirk Cutter because you knew they weren't going to run the ball effectively. And he got, Dirk Cutter had like this mini Mike Martz to him uh, last year, especially, where it's just like, 
I don't care that our offensive line is banged up and crap. The guys are going to fly down. <laughs> fly down. I don't care. We have no Julio. Fly down the field. Matt Ryan, go make a play, even though I'm giving you absolutely no protection to make such play or any pressure off you by actually running the football. So I think Arthur Smith is a big improvement any way you slice it, no matter what the philosophy is going to be, no matter what they're able to put together in the backfield for a Matt Ryan, for a Calvin Ridley, and when he's on the field for Julio Jones. And I think Hayden Hurst is somebody who gets to stay around my top 12 area with an Arthur Smith. I think it's just going to be a much more efficient offense. He was top five in red zone scoring. Part of that is because it's Ryan Taylor, Derrick Henry. Part of that, Arthur Smith has an offense designed to succeed in the red zone period. And I think that's going to continue on into Atlanta. Anything you want to add? No, I think that's the most crucial thing he's actually going to bring to the table is the red zone. Atlanta is one of the more inefficient teams in the red zone for the last few years. Um, even Steve Sarkeesian was there. They didn't do a great job in the red zone. So that's something I definitely have struggled with. I think that's something, you, as you pointed out, Arthur Smith has been very successful with. I think that's what he's going to bring to the table. I don't know schematically how much it changes for the receivers necessarily. Um, I do think there's still be vertical. I mean, AJ Brown did catch the ball down the field. I mean, one of the you know big time prospect and big time plays was usually that deep slant, that deep cross, that deep post. So I do think Holy has the opportunity to kind of do that. And I also think Matt Ryan doesn't have to just make this offense. Um, the one thing Matt Ryan has done with all, with all different coordinators is been play action, even when it's third down and eighteen, they go play action nine out of ten times for some reason. Um, but so I don't think it's a whole lot of adjustment for him. I think he'll be comfortable in this offense. That's kind of exciting for me. I think that helps him, you know, have to have a transition or necessarily growing pains as he kind of gets used to what Arthur Smith is doing out there. Well, and he's a professional veteran quarterback who can make all the throws. So there's not going to be too many systems out there that he's not going to be capable of succeeding in or executing in in the first place. But I think this is a good offensive mind who has a good idea of how to be efficient offensively. And that's really going to help because I think that's, that's one big thing with Atlanta is with all the talent they've had, they've been wildly inefficient as an offensive unit. And I think that changes this year. And yeah, you know, third and 18, you're, you're maybe, maybe get the defense thinking it's going to be a draw of that play. Actually, it's driving me crazy. I know. You, you never know. <laughs> the, one of these days we will have an episode where we're going to get into the play calling that goes on. And uh, what about that drivers drives us crazy <laughs> in situation? We, we will have to put together at least a segment of that at some point. Let's talk about another major fantasy impact coaching change. Let's head on up to Detroit. Dan Campbell, Anthony Lynn comes on in. We'll mention Aaron Glenn is going to be the defensive coordinator there. But Anthony Lynn, Dan Campbell, that combination. Now, it's hard because there's not a lot of talent in Detroit at the moment. But what does that do for Detroit with what they have in place? And schematically-wise, what do you think we're going to see? I mean, the one thing they both have in common is the running back position. that They utilize the running backs a lot in their offenses. Dan Campbell comes from an offense where he was, you know, helping New Orleans to Alvin Kamara, and they're utilizing Kamara all over the field. Um, previous to that was some of his co head coaching experience when Miami, they utilize the running back a lot. Um, and we know Anthony Lynn's been traditionally using the running back wherever he's coached and wherever he's been, whether it's in Buffalo, whether it was in the Chargers last year. So the one thing I think the player that most benefits is DeAndre Swift. Um, I think that the, you talk about the talent they have in place is not a lot, but one of the places they have some, have some decent talent is in the backfield. I think DeAndre Swift's going to be the primary playmaker. You hear talk talking a lot of, about using him in the Alvin Kamara role, um, utilizing him different, maybe in the slot, moving him around. I think that's going to probably be he's going to probably play the Austin Eckler route role in a lot of ways, where he's going to be featured, whether it's in a short passing game or as a running as running threat. Um, I I 
seems to be that they still want to kind of use a tandem back where they're looking for that power back. Anthony Lynn kind of likes to have that as well. Dan Campbell, and we call it in New Orleans, they use Mark Ingram, they use Latavius Murray. There's usually some kind of, you know, hammer to kind of counter the um, this quickness and speed. So I do think you're going to see some guys maybe vulture some touchdowns from DeAndre Swift, and maybe he won't be the, the all-time guy out there, but I think he's the most benefited guy out there, especially with the changes. Um, and with Jared Goff, Jared Goff's going to probably be a check-down machine, so <laughs> I think you're going to see the running backs really eat really well this year. He's going to have no choice but to be a check-down machine with, with what they have to throw the ball to. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people got really upset when Jamal Williams signed there because they were so amped up on DeAndre Swift. And I love DeAndre Swift. There was no reason to get upset when they signed Jamal Williams. None whatsoever. Anthony Lynn has a long history going back to Buffalo of having two running backs who succeed because he makes every backfield succeed. LaShawn McCoy was reborn under Anthony Lynn when he took over and Mike Tolbert was still involved. He goes to the Chargers, Austin Eckler and Melvin Gordon were excellent together. You did there was there ever a week where you thought to yourself, Oh, I don't know if I can start an Austin Eckler or a Melvin Gordon because I'm worried about one of them eating into it. No, there was no week like that. You could start them every single week. The volume is going to favor DeAndre Swift, both in the carries and in the passing game. Will it be 60-40? Yeah, good. While I love DeAndre Swift, he's not a guy I want to see getting, you know, 300 touches, especially over a 17-game season. He's a home run threat. He's a playmaker. He's a difference maker. And that's where you want him to be from a fantasy standpoint. That's where he's going to be explosive. That's where he could be special. When you combine, and this is what this is one of my favorite coaching changes because I love the combination of a Dan Campbell and an Anthony Lynn together. Love, love, love the combination because you have a Dan Campbell who knows the importance coming from the Saints and even going back to when he was the interim head coach for the Miami Dolphins as a guy who really emphasizes making the offense first flow through the backfield. And then from there, be having be able to play action and being able to control the game. That's what they're going to try to do. They're going to try to control the game. And then we combine that with a guy that Anthony Lynn, with his track record, who's excellent at making that backfield much more productive. I'm big on DeAndre Swift. And you know what? Jamal Williams might even have some flex play. He might even have some flex play value to his name as well in certain situations, but he'll definitely at least be a high-end handcuff on top of that. Now, as far as everybody else goes, I do like TJ Hawkinson quite a bit. Let's not forget Dan Campbell, ex-tight end, ex-tight end coach. He's, I think he's very good for the development of a TJ Hawkinson. We just talked about how Jared Goff is going to have to be a check-down machine. This offense is going to be very predicated on play action. His number one pass catcher, and we'll see what they do in the draft, but his number one pass catcher right now is going to be TJ Hawkinson. Anywhere on the field, by the way, not just in the red zone, but between the 20s too. It ain't going to be Brashad Perryman. It's not going to be Tyrell Williams, whatever they have left at this point. It's going to be TJ Hawkinson. So I love his value as a top 10 tight end within the schematics of this offense too. Now that's it. There's nobody else. Even if they draft somebody, I, I, I'm not going to go too crazy over whoever they, unless the West winds up being Jamar Chase, then I'll, I'll, I'll reconsider. But even if they wind up with a Jalen Waddle, it's going to be one of those situations where I'm still going to question in free draft leagues, how much is he going to make an impact in his rookie season right away within the schematic of this offense? Because it's going to be built around that backfield being trying to carry them. 
So it's going to be a big thing on what they're able to develop into. But as it stands right now, it's going to be a play-action-based team. I think you're going to see some elements of the Chargers, see some elements of the Saints. But you know where the focused value is. And I, the, Jamal Williams going there doesn't bother me when it comes to DeAndre Swift. I'm still looking at DeAndre Swift as a very solid RB2 who has upside from that position. God, do you have anything for that? I know. I definitely agree. I mean, I think the key for him is that he's going to be utilized in the passing game no matter what. So even if he doesn't get 20 carries, he's going to get his 15 touches, 15 to 20 touches regardless. I think that's the key. Talk about his explosiveness. It's a matter of just getting the ball in his hands, coming out of the backfield, running angle routes, running some, you know, screens, doing different things where he's going to be effective and he's going to not need to have to be out there carrying the ball 25, 30 times a game to be effective and have and be productive for you. I think he's definitely an RB too. Possibly even maybe even be able to do even higher. I mean, Austin Eckler, I don't think has quite the talent that you know DeAndre Swift has, and I think that's going to be interesting to see with some more talented, such as like Al Kamara was, how, how what the ceiling could be for Swift. I think for him, oh, I'm not as big on him as you were going coming into the draft or coming out of the draft last year. I do think this is a perfect hire for him. And one thing you're going to be sure of, like you're talking about with Detroit, is they're going to run the ball. This is, this is basically Greg Roman taking over Baltimore in a lot of senses. They have two guys committed to running the ball. Dan Campbell is all about physicality. It's all he, it's all he preaches, it's all he talks about, and he's already kind of bringing that, that kind of style. Hockiston's going to fit in perfectly with him because he can block. He's going to be out there and he'll be really effective. My only concern is that Anthony Lynn has, has lim- different kinds of success with the tight end position. Hunter Henry never became as good as I thought he could be. Um, with Hunter, with Charles Anthony play Lynn. was way better than we ever expected him to be. What'd you say? Come back with that. Yeah. Charles Clay had, had some good years there that you didn't expect to have necessarily. Um, so it will be interesting to see how it kind of folds. Talking about the rookies and impact. I'm not big on any receivers going there. I would necessarily draft them high or even look to try to get a hold of them. But the one player I would be interested to try to get a hold of, if they do draft Pitts and somehow he falls to them, then I, that's a player I definitely target. Well, and, and then you, I would target the running backs even more so because like, oh, now you're definitely going to be a two tight end situation on top of that. DeAndre Swift last year was a low end RB2 just based on the fact that he had five catches every single game he was out there. What do you think he's going to do with a guy like Anthony Lynn taking over, a guy like Dan Campbell taking over, where they want him in the Austin Eckler, Alvin Kamara? You think that's going away? No. And now he's only going to be in position to get more carries from the jump and be the main guy. I love DeAndre Swift this year. Jamal Williams does not bother me in the least. I'm just going to mention Dan Quinn got hired by the Cowboys, which is laughable to me. I mean, you got a guy who was a defensive mind who's notorious for not being able to put together a good defense, and you're going to a team that is notorious for not having a good defense, so there's no improvement there. Other than from a fantasy standpoint, this is excellent, right? Because yeah, now we know they're going to play. Cowboys are going to play prevent defense, defense starting from the first quarter. <laughs> And then the offense is going to have to keep scoring. So that, that's the good part there. Another just fly-by mention to make sure you guys are aware, Joe Barry. I, I, I mean, I can't believe this guy is still around because he's he's never been able to put together a good defense in his life. But Joe Barry did get hired by the Green Bay Packers to be the defensive coordinator after he's been the linebackers coach for the Rams the past three seasons, which means the Packers will continue to be a soft 3-4 uh, nickel type of defense. Nothing will really schematically change there. The one guy I do want to spend a little bit of time talking on is David Cully. This, and the reason I really want to talk to about him is not even so much from a fantasy standpoint. It's more from a 
man, oh man, I don't know if I've ever seen, maybe not since the 49ers hired Chip Kelly. I don't know if I've ever seen an, another coach get hired who had one year wonder written all over him the way David Culley does. I feel bad for this guy. I do. Just taking it out from a fantasy context at this standpoint, this is a guy who was, who was never sniffing head coaching jobs ever. And he's he, before this, you know, he was the running backs coach, pass coordinator for the Ravens, which that's kind of funny within itself. <coughs> and then before that, he was quarterback coach uh, for Josh Allen during his rookie season with the Buffalo Bills. But nobody, nobody was on this guy. Nobody was going to hire this guy. And I think they hired him as an appeasement in some sense to Sean Watson. And now that is going to be completely irrelevant. As I got a frog stuck in my throat at the moment. <laughs> so so he, he is going to be a one-year wonder, no matter what happens in the situation. Will he be a run-by-committee guy? Yeah, that's clear. With the signings they made, Philip Lindsay brought back David Johnson, signed Mark Ingram, who was with him over there in Baltimore. This is going. This is going to be a team that might be a fantasy wasteland, especially if Deshaun Watson's not able to get on the field. Now, let's take it from a standpoint: Deshaun Watson does suit up Week One. He's playing for the Houston Texans. There's nothing special going on here. The only best thing I can say is that Tim Kelly continues to be the offensive coordinator. So maybe they'll just continue with that where David Culley himself doesn't have any fantasy impact because he'll allow Tim Kelly to just continue to do what he has been doing. You just won't be able to touch this backfield, but maybe a Brandon Cooks will be able to eat because there might be a huge target share there available to him. And especially if Deshaun Watson's there throwing him the football, then I know at least he has a good quarterback. There's going to be a floor there plus volume. So Brandon Cooks is somebody no one's going to be excited about. And from an ADP standpoint... I think he's going to be a great value. Now, when it comes to Watson, it could have been any worse than it was last season. And he was still fantastic last season. So I'm still going to have him rated somewhere in my top eight, maybe seven, and kind of go from there. But it doesn't change the needle one way or another, other than I know David Culley is not going to be the head coach of the Houston Texans next year. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I'm not a David Culley fan. I'm not really sure I get the job either. Um, but I also want to point out that I'm not a big Tim Kelly fan either. I don't think that he did a great job with Houston's offense last year. It was very predictable. I think he did about um, as good as he could have with what they had. I don't know. You give me Wolf or Brandon Cooks and those guys and, and Sean Watson, I think I could have put up more than the points. But Watson had his best year of his career. He did, speaking. but you saw you saw a lot of those in, in garbage time points when they were already down by a lot and their offense wasn't had been sputtering most of those first two three quarters and all of a sudden they had to run. Kyler Murray has those nice little spurts in the fourth quarter that kind of saves his numbers. Are they not going to um, be in a lot of garbage time again this season? Well, though? no, and I don't disagree. The only thing I will say is what I think is going to be positive for either one of these with its hiring in both senses is no matter if it's Tyrod Taylor or it's Deshaun Watson, they're going to be utilized in RPO. They're going to be utilized as running threats. You're going to have a good floor with the quarterbacks, at least. I don't know how many great pass numbers they're going to put up. Um, you talk about Brandon Cooks is probably the only player that I actually like on that entire offense right now. Um, I don't really want to touch anybody. I don't think Deshaun Watson's still, you know, going to get suspended at some point or be at least suspended at the beginning of the season. So I don't really trust what their offense is going to look like. The one thing I do have a little bit of faith in is at least we know whoever the quarterback will wind up being will probably run for his life most of the time behind that crappy offensive line. Um, I don't without any draft picks really to kind of upgrade on their offense as well. I think it's going to be a really ugly year in Houston overall. Um, 
And I, I do agree that David Coley has a good shot at getting fired. We have we seen kind of something with Mike McCoy in Arizona where he just blamed out and was terrible. Um, I think we're seeing kind of similar thing where what did David Coley do anywhere? And I don't really know why he got his job. Um, he was you know, the receivers coach. He's never for the been a coordinator. Never called plays. He's well, been a Josh Allen, coach. Josh Allen wasn't great as a rookie. He significantly improved when David Coley moved on. Right. And the receivers for the Ravens are pretty much Achilles' heel. And nobody progressed under him. So I don't, like I said, I don't really understand what he brings to the table necessarily. Um, but the thing I said, I do think that he does have, he does like to run the quarterback and they do like to run the ball over in general. Um, so that's probably the only good thing I really take out of this whole situation. For me, Houston, I'm avoiding them other than Brandon Cooks, like I said, for the most part, this, you know, coming up this year. And that's only if Deshaun Watson plays. Because if Watson doesn't play, I don't even know if I'm looking at Cooks. I don't with, with Tyrod because like, even Keenan Allen threw out the ball when Tyrod was there. Like Tyrod will throw it to number one receiver. He don't throw it to number two receiver, but he'll throw it to one receiver at least. Do we know that though? Because we only got to see one game out of Tyrod, and it wasn't the Keenan Allen. Um, we kind of saw that even in Cleveland though. He th- he did target Landry. He did target their guys. He targets the number one guy. He doesn't target anybody else. He targets the number one the guy. Slot guy. Now, Mary, Brandon Cooks might want. Sammy Watkins got targeted a decent amount while in Buffalo too. That is true. Um, he, he gets. He usually gets the number one receiver is usually the guy. The, the prime guy usually gets the ball. That is the volume. Look, the targets will be there for Brandon Cooks. How much the Texans have the football will be another question entirely, depending upon what goes on in that situation. But I think ADP wise, if it's Tyrod Taylor playing because Deshaun Watson cannot because of legality issues or what have you. Uh, I better you better not be drafting him before the eighth round. I'm gonna tell you that oh, right no. now. Absolutely, absolutely so, not. And that that's kind of what we're looking at. Where he will be a great value in the eighth or seventh round. I think that's somewhere where he would go if Deshaun Watson is able to be the quarterback come week one. That's something that's really gonna play itself and out. Also, stream any defense I'm playing that week as well. One thousand percent. One thousand percent. And also from a DFS standpoint, play any offensive players playing against that defense. Exactly. I mean, the Houston Texans are really shaping up to be the worst team in the NFL going into the season. And I don't I don't think it's going to be close, uh, frankly, either with, with the talent they have or lack of on both sides of the ball and, and a no situation that is going to be disastrous and no draft picks to be able to improve upon. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to mention the Colts. They do have to hire Marcus Brady, technically speaking, as the offensive coordinator. He's been the quarterback's coach past four seasons, and this matters not at all because Frank Reich's the one calling the plays, and he's actually the offensive coordinator anyway. So let, let's take that, and we'll, we'll skip over the Jets real quick and talk about the Philadelphia Eagles. Talk about where Nick Serini, who was the offensive coordinator of the Colts, uh, and now he becomes the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, he was the offensive coordinator, but only in name. He didn't call plays. That's it. He was he was more of a you know assistant consultant, if you will, than anything else. The Eagles clearly are hoping that they are capturing the magic of Frank Reich by bringing in a Nick Serini. That's what they're hoping happens here. I'm not saying it can't happen, but there's no track record to base anything off of here. Now, do we know this is going to be a West Coast system? Yeah. Do we know that most likely this is going to be a backfield that turns into a committee? Yeah. At least to some degree, anyway. I mean, Miles Sanders will be the main guy when he's out there on the field, but we saw what even the main guy means with the Indianapolis Colts. We saw what the main guy meant in the Philadelphia Eagles with Peterson or Frank Reich. It means that, yeah, they get 15 carries, maybe somewhere between two and five targets. So maybe... If it's a really good game, they can get 20 touches in that game, but it's not a consistent thing. And other guys are going to get sprinkled in and pigeonholed into different roles. 
it does bother me that they signed Jordan Howard because it bothers me about what they're going to do when they get down to the red zone. They very well could just turn it over to Jordan Howard just because. And that'll take away from the Miles Sanders capabilities. I don't really love this hire from a Jalen Hurts standpoint. I would have rather seen him get somebody who has more of a college concept, RPO concept built in from the offensive background that he's coming from. That wasn't really Frank Reich's forte. He has a little bit of that when he had Carson Wentz, but not a lot of that. More of a pocket pass-based West Coast type of scheme, which you're going to have to be RPO-based with Jalen Hurts. He's never going to be... This is not a guy who can be throwing the ball 35-plus times in a game because he'll get exposed in a huge way. He has to be a guy that you're only trying to throw the ball 30 times and building more of an RPO offense around it, more of a college-based offense around it. Plus, not to mention... There aren't too many guys on the Eagles for him to throw to that many times either. Jalen Rager, eh. Travis Fulgham, flash and pan, told you so. De- Zach Ertz, I see no way he's in a Philadelphia Eagle for- uniform come week one, one way or another. So you're talking about Dallas Goddard as really the only trustworthy pass catcher, and he has a hard time staying healthy. This Eagle offense is going to be very interesting in a bad way. And a lot of people want to talk up Jalen Hurts as a sleeper quarterback. You, you know, he might be a value from a streamer standpoint. But I'm not drafting this guy thinking I'm getting a top 12 potential guy, even with his legs, even with his ability to run. Because eventually what's going to happen is that because this team is not good, they're going to be in a lot of situations where Hurts is going to have to throw the football. And again, he's one of those guys where the more he throws, the worse it's going to get, not the better. This isn't a situation where I want this quarterback to have a ton of volume. And I don't have anything from this coaching staff to trust. Shane Stetchen is going to be their offensive coordinator. He was the offensive coordinator of Chargers last season. Another guy who wasn't in charge of calling plays. So there's a lot of inexperience when it actually comes to putting together game plan and calling plays during the game here. That doesn't leave me with a lot of confidence in any of the Philadelphia Eagle players. I think ultimately speaking, Jalen Hurts will be a streamer because of his legs. Miles Sanders is a low-end RB2 because I don't expect him to play a full 17-game season, and I think his touchdowns are going to be in question within this scheme, within this coaching staff. Where, where are your thoughts on this? I think that you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. It's going to depend on how much of Frank Reich actually is coming with the coaching changes. Right. Um, one of the things you talked about, the RPOs and utilization, Carson Wentz wasn't asked to utilize the whole field. He did do a lot of RPOs his rookie year. He was pretty much put in a position to succeed where he gave a lot of half-field reads. He was asked to use his legs a lot more. Um, they utilized his athleticism. So I don't necessarily have the same point of view that you do with Jalen Hurts. I don't think this hiring necessarily will hurt him. I don't think they're going to try to put him in a position where he won't succeed. Um, and I do think both these coaches have shown success using RPO action. Um, and the thing that I like about the Sheen session signings is that – we. I'm not a Justin Herbert fan, but I will give him credit. He looked good last year. He looked prepared. He looked like he was ready to play. And that was that was mainly what his job was, was being the quarterback coach and trying to get him prepared and have him be a player to produce out there. So I think the, both those hiring together has an opportunity to work for the Eagles. Now, does it guarantee there's a change? No. Does it change a whole lot on our offense in general? No. Doug Peterson's offense was pretty much the same thing as what Frank Wright runs on. It's just a matter of how committed to the running game will you stay? How committed right. to utilizing your players will you stay? One well, of the things we saw that action be. Well, not just that, but we also saw Carson Wentz not utilizing his legs last year. We saw Carson Wentz being a pocket passer, which is kind of what he's not the greatest at, I think, in his 
partly took away his athleticism from in a lot of ways. When he's at his best, when their Eagles are at their best, when they're able to utilize the red zone and score in the red zone, which was Frank Wright was really good at, is they're able to have that threat of using utilizing their, their running their running quarterback. They use their tight ends a lot. Um, so I think you do see Dallas Goddard, as long as he's healthy, he will have a big year. He has the potential to have a really great year because both these coaches have had a history of using tight ends in their systems. Um, we saw I mean, Ali Cox have good weeks last year and for the Colts. So you know the tight end will be utilized in some kind of form. Now, it will be depend on a lot what they kind of add to receiver core. Um, I'm not a big guy who thinks that rookies necessarily have a huge impact unless they're really, really monster receivers because really it takes a little while to kind of transition. You might bring some things to the table. You might be able to stretch the field. You might be able to have some big plays here or there. But it's hard for rookies to kind of transition and be impactful right away. Um, they have Justin Jefferson, who they could have had. It did. And it, well, yeah, they're, they're regretting that. But even Justin Jefferson didn't start off the greatest. It took him a little while to get that hot streak. So you're going to have to kind of be patient with the Eagle offense to see kind of how it materializes this season. Now, for Jalen Hurst's point, I think I, I don't think he's just a streamer. I will draft Jalen Hurts if he's available in the right rounds. Um, I do like his legs. I do think that he has the potential to be pretty effective in his offense if they don't ask him to do too much. But neither one of those coaches have a history of utilizing the quarterback a lot and throwing the ball all the time. So I do think he, they're going to be kind of more of a conservative offense in a lot of senses. Um, I think it's imperative that their offensive line is healthy, though. I think it's going to be the key. Um, we kind of saw for the Colts last year when the offensive line was healthy, they were better. When their offensive line wasn't as good and as the year before, which Jacoby Brissett, they kind of struggled. Um, I feel like I that's a huge question mark for the Philadelphia Eagles. It is. I think it's gigantic. But you get Lane Johnson back, hopefully healthy. Um, you get Barrett Brooks back, hopefully healthy. That's two of the better, better you know, guards and tackles in the league. So they could take a significant um, upgrade. Now, as for the playmakers around them, not a Boston Scott fan, not a Greg Ward fan. Um, I think most of the guys they have, Jalen Rieger can run deep. I think he's a little bit effective when utilizing properly, but he's not number one receiver by any stretch of the means. They need to get somebody else to add to the offense. I am a little concerned with the passing game in general. Um, you can squeeze the passing game. We kind of saw that the Colts last year. T.Y. Hilton's not as good as he used to be, and the Colts' offense wasn't as nearly explosive as you would like, they would like it to be. So they're going to need to utilize the running backs a lot. You will see a committee. Both coaches are pretty much known for coming from backgrounds that use a lot of committees. Um, the Colts, you know, they had Naheem Hines out there. They had uh, Mack out there when he played. They had Taylor out there. They were Wilkins out there. The Chargers, we already talked about Anthony Lynn before. You're going to see Eckler. You're going to see a Kelly. You're going to see different guys that are rotating in backfields. So to your point about the Jordan Howard and Miles Sanders split, it will be interesting to see kind of how that unfolds. I'm not a huge Jordan Howard fan, um, but I do think that he'll be utilized a lot in the red zone because I do see them kind of pigeonholing him as that um, short yardage goal line type of back and having the opportunity to kind of get that red, those red zone touches. Yeah, I agree. There's one more team I want to talk about before we hit the break. And that is the New York Jets and their big coaching changes. And I have to say, that along with the Falcons, along with the Lions, this is another coaching change that I'm pretty excited about. I think Robert Salah is going to be a good head coach. Now, from a fantasy standpoint, we're more interested in Mike LaFleur, the younger brother of the LaFleur over in Green Bay coming from the Shanahan system and what that is going to mean. Now, again, this is another situation where we're going to have a better idea of what we're looking at after the draft, but let's assume it's going to be Zach Wilson. I think we, we could safely assume that at this point. Let's also assume that either with their later first round pick or their early second round pick, they'll probably add a running back. My thought is to probably be Travis Etienne, just thinking about the outside zone scheme that they're going to be looking to implement. And that would make sense to in my mind why they would want to go that route. 
So let's say for fun, it is Travis Etienne. You have Corey Davis. You have Denzel Mims. You have Jameson Crowder. Potentially a Zach Wilson and a Travis Etienne. Makai Becton, who gets better. Maybe they're able to add another offensive lineman to the mix with the tackles. All of a sudden, this starts to look like a team that is a pretty young version of a Kyle Shanahan team. Now, the question is going to be, Michael Floor, are you as talented of a play caller or are you just able to execute the system that you're going to be bringing over in place enough? I think there's some real sneaky potential value here across the board. Now, there's nobody who stands out from a superstar standpoint. There's nobody who I'm going to... There's You go to New York Jets, there's nobody I'm drafting, let's say, in the top five rounds. That includes Corey Davis and anybody like that. But this is a team that might be littered with sleeper guys, might be littered with role guys who are looking at your wide receiver threes, plug and plays, you're looking at your flexes, you're looking at potential boom guys. Chris, run with that scenario. Run with them taking a Zach Wilson, an offensive lineman, and a Travis Etienne with the scheme that they're going to probably run, or at least a concept of it anyway. And what are your thoughts? So I'm not as excited about this as you seem to be. Everything you just kind of killed the Eagles for, I look at the Jets situation is very similar. These guys have done what? Mike LaFleur coached on Mike Kyle Shanahan and called what plays? Their offensive passing game was how exciting for the 49ers last year. Um, I don't necessarily think that necessarily transitions or translates into that he's going to be super effective. And we also don't know what actually he's going to call. We kind of saw his brother go to Green Bay, and we thought he was going to be a certain kind of coach, and that's not kind of how it unfolded. Um, so I, I am curious to see how the offense does kind of translate. I don't necessarily even think they, they're going to take Travis Um We saw the 49ers. If they're going to go 49ers style, Kyle Shanahan really takes a, a running back high in the draft. He really targets a running back high in the draft. So why wouldn't they just try to kind of get by with somebody cheaper? I don't know. If it's guaranteed that they're going to spend their draft capital on that. Now, I think if they should... That part I don't agree with. I don't well, we did just with. see we just we did just see Matt Lafleur, you know, sign Aaron Jones to a twelve million dollar deal. So guys from that line that but he, he didn't draft him. He didn't draft him, but he he wanted he made a big financial commitment to him. They don't make big financial commitments nor draft running backs if you're Kyle Shanahan or Mike Shanahan, typically speaking. But other guys from that background do. They don't usually carry their same sentiment. Is is all I'm saying. Um, I just think. And now, if they do everything you're saying, if they run the West Coast offense, the Kyle Shanahan's offense, they do draft Wilson, which I do think is definitely going to happen. Um, and I do, you do add another back in the backfield. I think we look at that team, they do have some sneaky value um, because they do have some receivers that are pretty good. Crowder has an ability to get open in the slot. He's going to be probably the go-to guy in a lot of key situations because usually rookie quarterbacks like to have that guy as kind of their dependable guy in the slot. Um, Mims, to me, is an up-and-coming star. I think he runs a lot of Cortland Sutton, so I'm excited about what he can bring to the table. And then you added Corey Davis, who Corey Davis is Corey Davis. Um, but they're also talking about adding some other weapons so that they don't draft a running back and they do target maybe another receiver or add some other kind of playmaker to that offense. Um, that will be kind of interesting to see how more explosive they could be. Now, having said all this, no matter what, there are definitely more Jets to target this year than ever for the last two years because we watched Adam Gates just destroy offenses, yeah. destroy anybody. Can it do can't be anywhere. That's for sure. Exactly. So this is like, for Jets fans, this isn't Rich Code type. This isn't Adam Gase. You have something that at least will, should be 
semi-watchable and be able to have some production on the field for you guys. So no matter who plays the backfield or what kind of scheme it winds up being, it can't be as bad as it has been. Um, right. <laughs> right, which is why from a value standpoint, you look at a dynasty standpoint, I'm not scared to take Zach Wilson because he goes to the oh, New no. York Jets. And, and Zach also- Wilson's a, I'm going to tell you guys right now, Zach Wilson's a real deal. Yeah, we, we're going to harp on this all the way through, probably through Zach Wilson's career. And also, even from a redraft standpoint, within the confines of this system, because of what he'll be allowed to do with his legs and his playmaking ability, I do like the system fit for him, too. I would, I'm would, i I'm telling you right now, I'm going to take Zach Wilson before I take a Jalen Hurts. Because as bad as it is, because you want to talk about the Philadelphia Eagles, I'm sorry, but Corey Davis, Jamison Crowder, and uh, Denzel Mims are automatically more weapons than the Philadelphia Eagles have. Absolutely. I'm I'm going to trust it more. I'm going to play Zach. I'm going to take Zach Wilson before I take a Jalen Hurts from New York Jets. If you want to know my standpoint on what his fit is in that concept, in that style. And that's that's the impact here that I think most people have to look at. We got to take a break, though, because we still have a lot more to get to in the second segment. So everybody, keep listening to the MD's Fantasy Football Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, WSRN presented you by Belly Up Sports. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the MD's Fantasy Football Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Hello, MD Nation, and welcome back to the show. You are listening to the MD's Fantasy Football Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, WWSRN, also presented to you by Belly Up Sports. And this second segment is going to be brought to you by Monkey Knife Fight. They are a daily fantasy sports gaming website with a number of unique ways to win money on your favorite sports and players. It's a mix of daily fantasy and prop games. So all you got to do is download the app or go to monkeyknifefight.com with the promo code BELLYUP. And for a limited time only, they're doing a dollar-dollar match now up to $100. It used to be $50. Now it's up to $100 when you sign up with the promo code BELLYUP. So go check that out at monkeyknifefight.com or anywhere on your app store. So, Chris, we got to pick up the pace a little bit because we do have quite a few coaches that we have to talk about before we hit the mailbag segment here at the end of the show. But the most important one, that we have to talk about, and I wanted to save it for the beginning of the second segment, is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Urban Meyer, uh, Daryl Bevel, Joe Collins is going to be their defensive coordinator, just make sure I mention that in passing, taking Trevor Lawrence the first pick. They have DJ Chark. They have LaVisca Chenault. They have James Robinson. They have Marvin Jones. There's weapons there now. And the big question is going to be, of course, what is the transition of Urban Meyer from the college game to the pro level with a rookie quarterback who's been the number one prospect since he entered college football. I mean, I don't know. Outside of Andrew Luck, I don't know if there's another player who's had more hype on him coming into any draft, has more expectations on him coming into any number one quarterback pick. I don't know if there's been another guy like it. And you know what? That's what's impressed me so much about Trevor Lawrence. I don't want to get too much of a tangent on that, but that's what impressed me so much. The pressure has been on him since this kid got out of high school, and he's risen to the occasion all throughout his college years. And that's where I give him a ton of credit. So Urban Meyer is getting a battle-tested rookie right off the bat. Daryl Bevel, who did some impressive things once Matt Patricia disappeared to the ether and he took over for the Detroit Lions, he was able to do some impressive things with that offense. At least made it exciting again. That's for sure. He made it fantasy relevant again. That's for sure. It's a big reason why I think Marvin Jones ultimately winds up going there and finding himself in a role. Here's what we know. There will be college concepts to this offense, clearly. There will be some RPO action, but there's going to be a lot of 
easy reads, playing half the field reads. That's what we're going to see a lot of the time in this. I like this quite a bit for guys like DJ Chark, who I do believe will get moved around. I think Marvin Jones will have wide receiver four potential because I think you're talking about a guy who will be in a role where he'll get to hit some big plays and get to be the red zone guy and kind of get to be the veteran safety blanket. I also think this is going to be interesting for LaVisca Chenault. If he is able to take the next step up in his route running, and that's going to be the big question, but he's entering into a system that Urban Meyer, you better believe he's got some screen designs lined up, some jet sweeps lined up, some plays like that for LaVisca Chenault. What do you see in this offense? I think this is one of the most intriguing moves for me in the offseason. I don't know quite what to expect. You talk about Derek Bevel, you know, made Detroit exciting towards the end of last year. But Derek Bevel traditionally had been a very run conservative offensive coordinator. When he was in Minnesota, they were run first. They were very physical. They utilized the running game a lot. When he was in Seattle, it wasn't Russ cooking. It was a lot of him running the ball. At least a lot of the, you know, a lot of power backs being utilized downhill. Um, I am curious to see. The one thing I do think that you, you hit on right on the nail on the head with how this affects DJ Shark, especially of all the receivers. One of the things Daryl Bevel has a tradition of doing is utilizing the, the taller, bigger receivers. So he was Sidney Rice was very successful in Minnesota under him. Um, in Seattle, the receivers were successful. The bigger ones are usually typically had more featured. He likes to use the guys in the red zone. He likes to push the ball down the field a little bit. He does run the ball a lot, but he does take shots down the field. With Trevor Lawrence, you're not going to have to necessarily but a think and dunk offense out there. Then you're going to see shots down the field much more often than you kind of expect to. Um, so I think that's going to be kind of exciting to see. What Urban Meyer does is the most intriguing thing to me. Is it the Florida Ohio State system? Is it a spread offense? Is it a you know kind of talk about how Chenault be utilized? I think those guys will kind of have opportunities to be util- uh, you know be out there and have shots that you know do jet sweeps and get screens and things along the long lines. But I'm curious to see if there's going to be more two, two tight end, three tight end sets, or even more of a physical team because that's what Derek Bell typically had been traditionally. Um, so I'm curious to see kind of that, that marriage of those two worlds. Because as you said, it's going to probably be a lot of college um, schemes used. But also, Darren Bell has been around for a long time in the NFL. He's got a lot of traditional, you know, two two running back sets and a lot of like, power formations he uses. So I'm kind of curious to see how they kind of balance each other out. I think regardless, um, I think it's going to be an upgrade from what we kind of saw. The one thing is I also am very curious about is while Gruden didn't do a great job necessarily, Jay Gruden, that is not John Gruden. Uh, Jay Gruden didn't do the, the greatest job passing-wise. Mike Lennon was pretty successful. It's, Minshew had some decent games, but James Robinson really exploded. And we've seen Jay Gruden be pretty successful at running games no matter where he's gone. So I'm kind of see, I'm kind of curious to see was it his his touch or is it something that James Robinson will continue to be as good as he was last year? It, that comes down to Daryl Bevel to me when, when you're talking because Daryl Bevel has a track history of being good with running backs as well. To your point, I think the big reason this marriage happened though is because what we saw Bevel adapt to last year with the Detroit Lions, where he wasn't three tight end set guy. He was, let's air it out, because I have a Matthew Stafford, and I have a Marvin Jones, and I also have no defense and a bad team. That could be very, very similar to what we see out of Jacksonville, because ultimately, this isn't going to be a good team. And ultimately, this isn't going to be a very good defense either. There are going to be a lot of situations where there's going to be garbage time points to be had here. I think ultimately, we see a predominantly spread system team that maybe has a little bit more physicality to it, bringing in a Daryl Bevel with the running back situation and a little more jumbo packaging. 
which is why I think James Robinson's going to be okay at the end of the day. I think the, the fact that they brought in Bevel makes me feel like he's going to be okay because that's the big question mark everyone seems to have on their mind is where does James Robinson now fall with this offense? I'm not that worried about it. I've seen Urban Meyer in his Ohio State systems have success with bigger backs. Now, whether James Robinson is their guy, that's more of my question than what his fit is and his skill set is within this offense, which goes back to if he's effective, and I don't see any reason schematically why he wouldn't be, I think he can turn into their guy if he's not their guy already. So I'm not really overly concerned. Now, am I looking at this as James Robinson because of the coaching staff set up here, is going to be an RB1 again? No. And if you draft him like an RB1, I'm going to tell you right now, he's going to be on my top list as far as busts go compared to where you're drafting him at, compared to where his ADP is going to be. The safer thing to do in this situation is still take into consideration that it's not a good offensive line. It is a new coaching staff. It is a new scheme. He's not going to just get fed the ball over and over and over again. So much of his value was tied to his volume last season. It's not going to be the same thing because it is going to be a spread out offense. And they are going to put the ball in Trevor Lawrence's hands more. Can he be effective? Can he be efficient? Can he score touchdowns? Can he stay on the field all three downs? Yes, all of that is true. So that's it's not going to go from you know what he had last season to under 200 touches, but it's not going to be that consistent. I will get fed no matter what. Therefore, I'll have fantasy value no matter what, which is why he's not going to be an RB1. He doesn't have a special skill set. He's not overly explosive. He's not overly powerful, but he can do a little bit of everything, and he's on the field enough. He'll be good. He's an RB2. Just don't overdraft him. Take take what this schematic team, what this team's going to be now with a Trevor Lawrence and Urban Mile and Darrell Bevel, and just keep that in mind. That's what I want to say to people. As far as DJ Charcos, he's a wide receiver too with upside because I think he's got a real chance. Like you said, Bevel utilizes those big guys. He usually gets some touchdowns, and he likes to move his big guys into the slot. He likes to move them around. And I think DJ Chark is set up in a real good position to have a nice bounce back season. Do I think DJ Chark has wide receiver one upside? No, no, I don't. But do I think he can be a very, very solid wide receiver two for the consistency of the year and maybe have a lot of volume where he outplays where his rank is going to be on a week-to-week basis because of the way this team sets up, because they're going to be more aggressive offensively, because they are going to have a lot of garbage time points, because they'll have a better quarterback situation, a better offensive mind? Yes, I do. So I think he's set up for a bounce-back season here based on these coaching hires as well. And like I said, LaVisca Chanel is somebody we're going to have to watch throughout training camp and really see where we are. Let's move on to the Chargers because that was the other big coaching change regime. Brandon Staley, who was the defensive coordinator for the Rams, he takes over. Makes me kind of excited about their defense. Offensively, they bring in Joe Lombardi, which is where this gets interesting. The last time Joe Lombardi was an offensive coordinator was 2014-2015 with the Detroit Lions where they threw the ball a ton, a ton. We know Austin Eckler's going to get his. I'm not worried about that. I don't care who they decide winds up being the power back next to him. In fact, he right now, he's in a situation where he might be looking at more carries than you would expect. So I, I like Austin Eckler. If you're at PPR leagues, I like him as a potential low-end RB1 because he's going to catch the ball a lot coming out of a Joe Lombardi. He was already doing that anyway, but Joe Lombardi is going to continue that trend of utilizing Austin Eckler in that sense. Are you worried about his health through a 17-game season? Yeah. Yeah, you are. Which, again, is why Austin Eckler is going to be somebody that I'm going to beg MD Nation, don't overdraft this guy. 
but he does have the upside of a low-end RB1 when he's on the field, especially we're talking about half-point and full-point PPR leagues. This system will fit him beautifully. It's also going to fit Keenan Allen beautifully. You, you saw Michael Thomas get featured. I mean, all the number one receivers of the Saints and Joe Lombardi, when he goes back to Detroit Lions days, all the number one guys got featured. That was when Calvin Johnson and Marvin Jones both had 1,000-yard seasons. So he's going to get featured a ton, too. We already know Justin Herbert loves to throw him the ball. I think the question is, does this upgrade Mike Williams in any kind of way? Does this change his role? I'll let you give your thoughts on that and the coaching staff of the Chargers here. Um. I don't know if it necessarily changes Mike Williams' role. I mean, Joe Lombardi does come from Sean Payton tree of New Orleans, as you kind of pointed out. Um, they don't typically don't have two effective receivers. They don't have usually have one. Um, but he did have a good year with Detroit. They did throw the ball a lot. Part of that was Detroit's defense was terrible. All, you know, one of the most deep worst defenses we've seen in a long time. And then you had Matthew Stafford, and you had Calvin Johnson, and you had Marvin Jones. So you were kind of utilizing the playmakers he had in place. Um, I don't know necessarily. I think it's going to change a whole lot in the Chargers. I think. Th- they're going to expect to try to keep status quo in a lot of ways. I think Justin Herbert has had a great jump out year. I think it can be a lot of pressure on the coaching staff not to change too much, not to bring necessarily too many things to it, you know, onto the table with him to have him, you know, kind of regress in any kind of way. So I'm kind of curious to see how much of their actual scheme they can keep from last year and how much actually does transition. I think the Chargers are going to be with the Chargers have been for the last couple of years offensively. Like you said, Austin Eckler is going to be what he does. What he does. The only thing that might have Mike Williams this year is they finally don't have Hunter Henry there to also steal um, touches from him. And he's, he'd probably be the primary red zone target other than when Ke- other than Keenan Allen. One thing we see about Justin Herbert is he loves locking on Keenan Allen and loves locking on that number one receiver. Defenses start trying to take that away. We can, might see Mike Williams have a more breakout type of you know opportunity. Um, like I said, not really throw the rest of the receivers they have, Jalen Guyton, uh, Hill, Nobody really kind of, I'm worried about stepping up and necessarily stealing his touches. So Mike Williams does have a chance to kind of do something. Um, but I don't necessarily think the coaching changes really affect any of those players really offensively too much this year. Yeah, it, it, it might be a more West Coasty type of system. It might be a more pass-first type of system than it necessarily was under Anthony Lynn. But as far as the roles go, you're right. They're Keenan Allen will still be featured the same way he was. Uh, you know, Justin Herbert, they're still going to be looking to throw the ball the way they were. Austin Eckler's still going to be featured in the same capacity that he was. I think the real question is, can Mike Williams be more than just a one-trick pony? My answer to that is, I don't really think so. Because to your point, I mean, the Saints, they kind of use that second receiver as a one-trick pony to begin with. Uh, Jared Cook will be in the same role that he was with the Saints, where he'll, you know, he'll be a, a nuisance come red zone time, but he's going to be very hit or miss from a game-to-game situation. So it doesn't actually change a lot other than we know it'll just be a pass-first system. And I think everybody gets valued the same way. We're going to get into, when we get into team profiles, that's when I'll get into more of what my Justin Herbert analysis and stuff is going to be. But for this show, focusing more on the coaching changes aspect of it, it doesn't really affect it too much other than I think this will be a good offensive system and will remain the guys that you value in fantasy, you'll continue to do so. The one key thing I think is to see that the Chargers were horribly ineffective in the red zone last year. Anthony yeah. did a terrible, terrible, terrible job when it came to getting inside the 20s last year. Um, he basically ran the ball two or three times right in the middle. He was super predictable. Um, so the one thing that could you could see is a little bit of boost in touchdowns. That's why I do think Mike Williams has a chance to be okay. And maybe even Keenan Allen is a little more utilized in the red zone because they were awful last year in the red zone. The other coaching change that we have to dive into is is a very, very intriguing one, a a fantasy frustrating one. And when you're talking about the Dolphins, 
which again, for the third year in a row are changing the offensive coordinator position. And again, not fully understanding it, not really sure what Chan Gailey was supposed to do more than he did last year. But let's look at that aside. We're entering a situation where we're going to see something a little unprecedented. Now, we've seen passing game coordinators. We've seen run game coordinators. We've never seen guys that we, where they had two guys expected to actually call plays. And if the senior bowl was any indication, maybe they're thinking about having both these guys call plays in the same game, one half versus the second half, because that's what happened here. George Godsey, who is the co-offensive coordinator, uh, he was the Dolphins tight end for the past nine years. He is He called the plays in the first half of the senior bowl. And then Eric Studsville, who's been the Dolphins running back coach for the past three years, he called the plays in the second half. George Gazi more focusing on passing game. Eric Studsville focusing more on running game. Obviously so, given where they normally coach as far as their positions go. But of the two, George Gazi is the only one who has previous play caller experience. Eric Studsville has none. And yet, as we have to take it you know, April 16th right now, the expectation is going to be that both of these guys are going to call plays. I think this is going to be a hindrance. I don't think this is a good idea. If the plan plan is to have two guys calling plays in the same game, it it would even be better if you're like, fine, one week you call the plays, the other week, and I still don't think that would be great, but that would be better than the idea that they may be looking at having two guys call plays in the same game. The biggest thing about play callers, let me just finish this real quick. The biggest thing about play callers is having continuity throughout the game and having that game flow. That's the biggest issue amongst play callers. You are setting yourself up in a situation, and that's hard to do even with one play caller. You're setting yourself up in a situation where there's going to be zero continuity from one half to another half. That's, that's what you're setting up to have. From a schematic system standpoint, because these guys have already been on the coaching staff for the past few seasons, the past few coordinators, I don't think you're going to see a gigantic change in the concepts that you've seen the Miami Dolphins already or how these players are utilized. It's going to be more of what are the consequences from having two guys be responsible for calling plays. And I think this is a disaster waiting to happen. It's the one thing about the Miami Dolphins that makes me hesitate, especially when you're examining this team from a fantasy standpoint with the weapons that they have in place. Go ahead. You can you can go now. Oh, thank you. Um, so I'm not sure if it's going to be unprecedented necessarily. We saw something similar to this in Baltimore, where Greg Roman called the running plays and um, Martin Morty would called the passing plays for the Baltimore Ravens. That was kind of how they called their plays. It's how they ran their offense. I don't – I. I, I think I'm understanding it's not going to be by halves. It's going to be by based on it's a running player. It's a passing play that they're calling. I do agree that I don't, I don't prefer this. Um, we kind of saw that the Ravens were more effective once they got rid of Marty Moneywig and Greg Roman became the head coach, I mean, the officer coordinator, head officer coordinator, and was just a clear cut guy who called the plays. There was more out. continuity. Exactly. Um, but it's not unprecedented. Like I said, it is something that teams have done. The big thing I think it really hinders you is how do you go up top though? How do you go fast pace? It's going to make you be, be very predictable in a lot of senses because you're going to have to be able to keep an eye on the clock, get the plays in, and depending on the head coach, I guess it's going to be the one kind of dictating it's, you know, third and seven. Do we call a draw here or do we call a passing play? Um, it's going to be kind of interesting to see how that kind of unfolds. I know that the Ravens, what they kind of did is that when it came to third down with certain downs, um, it was Marty Wardwick's calls, and then when it was become or third and longs or second and longs, he got kind of the play calling opportunity. And then it was Greg Roman was more the first second down guy and then the red zone guy. 
So maybe something that holds like that. To your point, though, neither one of these guys really has a, a whole lot of experience calling plays, especially professionally. Um, and Eric Sussfield has been a great, you know, quarterback running back coach for a long, long time and has done a great job coaching up some running teams that are – and Lynn did a nice transition for himself when becoming Baltimore's, you know, and I'm sorry, Baltimore Buffalo's oh, well. um, a coordinator at one point after being predominantly most of his running back coach. So it, it can be effective. I just don't think that having two guys necessarily do this is a smart thing. Dolphins just seem to be not really sure what they're trying to do offensively. Each no year can, I mean, it seems that they had an idea which Hangula was going to be a spread offense last year. And then somehow that wasn't too friendly enough. So now that to be too friendly by having two guys that never did anything with Tua. So I'm not really sure how it's supposed to be more effective or going to be, you know, better um, for the offense or for anybody necessarily in play there. I just think that overall the Dolphins should have more talent offensively this year. Um, and they sure are they're, everybody's expecting to kind of take a playmaker with or one of their picks, at least maybe even two playmakers. And I do expect a little bit of jump from Tua. So maybe he makes them look good. But the coaching changes, I don't really think changes the offense a whole lot because we have no idea what to expect really from the, them moving forward. I have two predictions ultimately. Ultimately, I believe that this means there's a limit, a ceiling on every single fantasy worthy player on the Miami Dolphins. And the second one is if there's going to be one guy who does emerge, it would probably be George Gossie just because he does have the previous play calling experience. But this is going to be a situation we're going to have to watch very intently throughout training camp because when you talk about guys like Devontae Parker and Preston Williams and Mike Gusecki and Miles Gaskin and Tua Tagovailoa, there's fantasy guys that you're going to wonder about. And I think it's going to be questionable at best is what their ceilings can be given this situation. I want to run through a game too. Because I mean, Jake, you talked about Jake Rudin when he, he did in Jacksonville. Chain Gilly had a pretty good running you know, attack last year. They had all kinds of different backs out there. Gaskins, they threw different guys out there. Ahmed, they were all productive. Will those running backs be productive this year as they were last year? Yeah, I agree with that as well. I want to run through a few names just to make sure you guys are up to date. I'm going to get into the mailbag segment pretty soon. Uh, the Rams hire Raheem Morris as the defensive coordinator. Solid hire, I think, there for them. Uh, we also have the 49ers hire D'Amico Ryans to take over as defensive coordinator for Robert Salah. And the Seahawks, we can talk about this a little bit. The Seahawks hire Shane Waldron, who's been the passing game coordinator for the Rams for the past four seasons, as their offensive coordinator, which is a little weird, considering I thought the game plan here was that they wanted to run the ball more. You bring in the guy under Sean McVay, who is the passing game coordinator, doesn't really seem to line up with the philosophy that Pete Carroll had a problem with uh, last year with uh, Brian Schottenheimer is drawing a blank there who has more of a track history of, of running the football more. So I'm going to be a little curious to see what they do, but does this change now? Does Seattle change their offense from being a primarily play action vertical type of offense? And now are they going to attack the levels more? I, I want to see how much of the Sean McVay offense is this guy going to bring in? Because if he does, let me tell you from a schematic standpoint, it's going to work a lot better because DK Metcalf is going to be used more than a one-trick pony. Tyler Lockett will get used like Cooper Cup. He's a faster Cooper Cup. I like it a lot there. I like it a lot for Chris Carson. If he brings in a Sean McVay-like system to Seattle and Pete Carroll doesn't get hung up on, I have to run the ball 25 times a game for absolutely no reason whatsoever, no matter what the situation is, I like the way these pieces fit in this offense with Russell Wilson quite a bit, if that's going to be the driving concept. Give me a, a couple of comments on that. 
I mean, I don't think necessarily it doesn't mean they're going to be a run first offense. We did see the Rams prefer to run the ball, and they were most effective when they ran the ball with Todd Gurley. And even last year, they're as most we saw, effective when they're balanced. When they're balanced, but they build their passing game off their running game. Their running backs are usually they're kind of your key to their offense. Um, and I think that similar to Kyle Shanahan, you know, Sean McVay comes from the same tree. This, you're going to see a lot of West Coast comp sets, which I think Russell Wilson's good at rolling out. I think he can, he's good throwing their own move, bootlegs, hopefully more often. Um, you saw Jared Goff has some easy throws for the bootlegs. I think it also benefits the tight ends a lot in Seattle. I think that's going to be the key production jump. I think you will see a lot more utilized. Tight ends are going to have an opportunity to be used. We saw Higby be effective. We saw Everett, when he got a chance to play, be effective. So I think you're going to see the tight ends more heavily involved in the passing game. The levels point that you're making, uh, I think that you will see kind of it be more of a half offense or half the field reads for Russell Wilson where he's rolling out. Maybe he has a dragging DK or he has a dragging tight end coming across. Um, I do think you're going to have an offense that's going to be a little bit more balanced, but I do think it may run first offense still. Big difference for me is that you don't have to have necessarily have a power running offensive line. They try to, they've been trying to establish for the last couple of years when they don't have linemen to actually do that. And they have guys who can actually move and be physically and kind of be more agile and active. And I think that's going to benefit a lot of their offense in general where you don't have Russell Wilson just standing back there taking hits. Um, he's going to be able to move a lot more, and all lines will be moving a lot more. I think a zone blocking scheme, which is what they'll change to, is going to be a huge yes. payoff for this offense in general. And I was just going to say that if they do implement this new offensive philosophy, I do think this will make this offense more consistent. It won't Absolutely. be so high and low the way it was last season. I think it will make it more efficient and more uh, consistent throughout the year as well. So I do think this is a good hire, ultimately speaking, if – P. Carroll lets him do his thing and run that particular scheme. Um, I'm just going to mention Todd Downing, who was the tight ends coach of the Titans. He takes over for Arthur Smith. Schematically, this is going to change nothing for Tennessee. It's all going to come down to how effective of a play caller are you? Can you remake the magic that Arthur Smith had to continue the success of a Derrick Henry, a Ryan Tannehill, and A.J. Brown. Ultimately, I think that those players will be fine. I don't think their fantasy value changes that much, but I don't I don't think the offense as a whole is going to be quite as good either. But I think the targets go up for A.J. Brown, given the lack of other targets they have to throw the ball to, whether it be in the red zone or between 20s in general. Derrick Henry is still going to get plenty of carries. That's not going to change. Ryan Tannehill is still going to be able to run a little bit and throw a little bit and be pretty effective and be a pretty effective streaming quarterback. So I don't think it changes other than I think there's maybe more of a ceiling limit on a Ryan Tannehill, maybe a little bit more of a ceiling limit on a Derrick Henry. But ultimately, the extra volume, very curious to see what happens to A.J. Brown. But conceptually-wise, I don't think this is going to change that much. we got to jump into the mailbag segment because we're running out of time. It's cool. Here. So again, Ben was not able to join us, but he did pre-record this. So let's go ahead and get the first question. All right. Our first mailbag question is from Craig. And it is Darren Waller in the 10th pick in the first round for Ezekiel Elliott in the tight end premium dynasty. So Darren Waller and the 10th pick in the first rookie round for Ezekiel Elliott in a tight end premium dynasty league. I'm keeping Darren Waller and that 10th pick because Ezekiel Elliott, as good as he is, and as great as I, I still think he has another two years of really good football in him, especially with Dak Prescott being back. Having Darren Waller and that 10th pick where you might be able to get a pretty good running back or a pretty good player in general is going to be better for you in the long term. Now, if you're running back away from having a championship team, that would change my tune. So it does depend upon what kind of situation you're in here. But I think 
ultimate value wise, I'm sticking with Darren Waller in a tight end premium league and that 10th pick rather than take Ezekiel Elliott. Where are you at? Quickly. Yeah, I would definitely keep the tight end and the pick. I think Darren Waller is one of the top tight ends in your tight end premium league. You want to have one of the best ones there is. Still a young guy. And having that 10th pick, I think Zeke's got maybe one, two years left in Dallas. I love Darren Waller, especially in a tight end premium dynasty league. I think he's going to catch a lot of passes, especially because the Raiders lost Al Galore and a lot of their receiving core. Um, I'm not high on Ezekiel Elliott. So if you're getting Waller and a first round pick for a guy like Ezekiel Elliott, you're taking that. So Ben agreed as well. Let's get to the second question. Our next question is from Travis, and it's Josh Jacobs, or the eighth pick in the first round of Michael Gallup. In a 12-team Superflex League also. So Josh Jacobs, or you want the eighth pick and Michael Gallup. Give me the eighth pick and Michael Gallup in a Superflex PPR League here. I don't know what the ceiling of a Josh Jacobs is anymore. Between what Gruden is doing to that team with the offensive line, higher, getting in Kenyon Drake on top of it now to kind of get mixed in there. If Josh Jacobs isn't going to suddenly start catching the ball more and he's just going to be the, the guy who gets the carries like he has been and be very inefficient on a team that is heading in the wrong direction, in my opinion, with, with the moves that they have made, especially offensively, I think they're going to be anemic scoring. I'd rather take that eighth pick and Michael Gallup, who very well might be off of Dallas next year. And if he is, I'm going to be interested to see where he winds up because this is a receiver with a lot of talent who could really make a big impact if he gets to go somewhere else next season. What do you say? Yeah, I, mean, I might I may even consider doing the eighth pick just for Jacobs, but having Gallup throw it into the equation, I think he showed that he was pretty effective when Dak was healthy last year. He had some big games with Dak. And it's at least another chip that you can maybe package with somebody else to move on and get some other things. So I would definitely make that trade. Um, I'm taking that eighth pick in the first round of Michael Gallup. Uh, I don't think Gallup holds too much value um, just because there's C.D. Lamb and Amari Cooper in front of him. But Josh Jacobs is in a really weird situation where he wasn't good last year and the Raiders offensive line only got worse and they also brought in Kenyon Drake. So I think that first round pick um, holds more value than Josh Jacobs. Ben agrees again. Let's get to question number three. Our next question is from Penny and it's Brandon Cooks from Marquis Brown. Brandon Cooks for Marquise Brown. Uh, yes, I'm assuming this is a dynasty league. Yeah, 100%. Because even if Deshaun Watson stays on there, this this offense is still going to be left a lot left to be desired. We don't know the future for Brandon Cooks. He may be getting stuck in Houston for a little while now. I don't know. And while Marquise Brown has not developed as quickly as I was hoping for, he is going into year three. It's usually going to see guys take a bit of a jump. Uh, even if he gets to be the big play guy, uh, he still has more room to grow with Lamar Jackson. I think ultimately talking about two guys who are kind of similar and what their usage is going to be. Uh, yes, Marquise Brown's not going to get as many targets as a Brandon Cooks is, but for down the road from dynasty purposes, give me the younger guy who still has untapped potential rather than a guy who's in a situation that might be a complete dumpster fire, especially if Deshaun Watson is not the quarterback. What do you say? I mean, I'm not bailing on Marquise Brown like a lot of people seem to be. Having said that, I definitely take the Brandon Cooks because te Texans have nobody else to throw the ball to right now on their offense. I mean, he's going to be primarily the, their passing game as of right now. They have um, Kiki Kute, and it's about all I think. And they don't have stills anymore. They don't have Fuller anymore. So I think Brandon Cooks is definitely the way to go. For 2021, I agree. I'm thinking more long-term here with, with Marquise Brown. Let's see what Ben has to say. This is a difficult situation. Obviously, Brendan Cooks, you don't know what's going to happen with Deshaun Watson with the allegations. And Marquise Brown is boomer bust in fantasy football. Uh, just because of the circumstances and maybe the development of Lamar Jackson, I would take Marquise Brown. 
Um, Brandon Cooks is obviously a great deep threat, and if he changes teams, that gives him more value. But for right now, we don't know what's going to happen with Deshaun Watson, and if it's not Deshaun Watson throwing him the ball, I don't want him on my team. And our final question is from Max, and it is Corlin Sutton, or the sixth pick in the second round, and the seventh pick in the second round. Yeah, Cortland Sutton all day, every day. I don't care how many second-round picks you want to give me. Give me the guy who's going to be a superstar wide receiver for years to come and has been with terrible quarterback play. How about you? So I surprised myself. I love Cortland Sutton, but I'd take the two second-round picks on this one. You have a guy coming off major surgery. You have a quarterback question still in Denver. Um, I would take the two second-round picks on this situation. Well, let's see if Ben breaks the tie. Um, I would take those second-round picks. Similar to Brendan Cook's, Obviously, a different situation. The quarterback situation is interesting in Denver. I don't love Drew Locke. Um, it is very hard for me to get behind him. Corlin Sutton's also coming off an ACL there, so they might be uh, a little careful with him. And I think those second-round picks can hold more value than Corlin Sutton will give. I think it's all going to depend on who falls, but I'm going to take Cortland Sutton because they make any improvement on the quarterback situation. I love what his upside could potentially be. Uh, two of the poll questions that I do want to get into that we had – if they were to start day one, who would be the best fantasy rookie quarterback, assuming they would start day one? And we put in Trevor Lawrence for the Jaguars, obviously. Uh, Zach Wilson going to the Jets. We have Mac Jones going to the 49ers. And then we had Fields or Lance as the fourth option, not you know, not with a particular team because it is kind of up in the air where they're going to go. MD Nation answered 56% would go with Trevor Lawrence as the best one. 10% Zach Wilson. 9% Zach Jones. 25% for Fields or Lance. So they're going with Fields or Lance as the second best quarterbacks to Trevor Lawrence from a fantasy standpoint. I disagree with that. To me, it's going to be Zach Wilson who would be number two. And if Mac Jones goes to the 49ers, I will have him ahead of Justin Fields and ahead of Trey Lance. And again, this is assuming if they all started day one. Uh, so I, I kind of disagree with MD Nation a little bit on Fields and Lance being ahead of that. But Trevor Lawrence ultimately being number one does not surprise me. And then the last one, which receiver will finish number one overall in scoring in PPR leagues? Tyreek Hill, DeAndre Hopkins, Devontae Adams, or Stephon Diggs? 51% in favor of Devontae Adams, 19% for Stephon Diggs, and 19% for Tyreek Hill, and 11% for DeAndre Hopkins. I expected this answer to be Devontae Adams. I was a little bit surprised in the discrepancy given how Stephon Diggs did last season. And you're talking about a PPR standpoint. Go ahead. Give me your last thoughts on that. I mean, I think it has to be Devontae Adams until Green Bay adds another receiver. They have no other body to throw the ball to. So I think you just kind of lean to the guy who's been doing it for the last couple of years for Green Bay. No, I, I don't disagree. I was just kind of surprised how wide the discrepancy was there. That does it for the show, guys. I hope you all enjoyed it. We'll be back next week. Uh, we might be doing a full first round. We're going to have a little more fun next week where it's going to be a full first round mock draft, but it's going to be completely fantasy. So it's going to be 32 fantasy only picks. So what would happen if 32 teams only took quarterback, running backs, receivers, or tight ends? Uh, so we're just kind of a little bit more fun next week as we get prepared for the draft, which will be on April 29th and April 30th. Belly Up Sports' MDs and BUFL's NFL draft coverage will be co streaming commercial free over 50 different guests, giving you pick-by-pick -pick betting analysis along with fantasy and football analysis that will be going to you on all of your social media accounts at Belly Up MDFF Show, at Belly Up Fantasy, and on 
YouTube. Make sure to check us back again next week from 11 to 1230 on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network at WWSRN. Give Chris and me a follow at Show, and make sure you send in those questions for the mailbag segment next week. MD Nation, take care. Have a good weekend, and we'll see you then.